Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. The biggest change, I think, is the encouragement for actors and camera people and cast and crew to, if they see something, to say something. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, As always, I am Steve Lowry here with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. This This is a special Memorial Day weekend recording. I know you told me that you had some special plans this weekend. What are your, uh, why don't you tell our audience what the plans are? Oh, did I have special plans this weekend? You said you're going to Ikea. Oh, I am. I am going to Ikea. <laughs> I'm going to Ikea. And you seemed excited about it when Ikea, you talked about it. Memorial Day weekend. I do love Ikea. This is, this is not an ad. I do love Ikea. Yeah. But um, going there in Atlanta, Memorial Day weekend, I have to be out of my mind. Bonkers insane, but I'm yeah. going to do it. And as I was telling you, I've never actually been to an Ikea. So I don't know what it's I'm crazy. missing. It's crazy. I love it. Everything comes in a flat box. In a flat box, you might need to be. Uh, yeah. You put uh, it together, high stakes Legos. Yeah. I love it there. How many parts do you throw away when you're putting stuff together? I use, I, I like separate them all out. I follow the directions. I, I love Ikea. I'll go with anyone. If anybody wants to invite me. They have Swedish meatballs there too. Did you know that? Do they? Mm-hmm. They're, yeah. known, they're known for their Ikea Swedish meatballs. Yeah. I have never heard that before. Yeah. This is it's cool. not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and just so everybody knows, that is our uh, guest today, one of our guests today, Jeff Harris. Um, and we'll introduce him in a second. Um, Does that mean but, you, want, uh, you want me to stop talking about Ikea? Now? No, let's talk about Ikea more. It's, uh, it's great. <laughs> um, I'll stop, but I, Ikea, if you want some ad space. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we should should we should we should call Ikea and charge them for this uh, this yeah. show. Mr. Ikea, give us a call. Um, well, as uh, you heard already from one of our guests today is Jeff Harris, uh, my law partner at Harris Lowry Manton. And no, he is, no, you're my law partner. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> one of us is somebody's law partner, um, and he is here with his, uh, as I've said before, much much better half, uh, Rebecca Franklin Harris, who is from Franklin Law Firm. And uh, we are going to be talking about the case of Jones versus CSX Transportation, which was tried uh, here in Chatham County, Georgia, and was an $11,221,499 verdict. Uh, and we'll talk about as we go that there was some apportionment done, but, uh, but the verdict, uh, the case was tried against CSX Transportation. Um, so, as I said, uh, Yvonne, we know Jeff and Rebecca pretty well. This is a different show. Um, we're talking to our law partners, our people that we try cases with. In this case, uh, this case that we're talking about, actually all of us worked on at some point or another. The three of you, Jeff, Rebecca, and Yvonne, all tried this case. Um, so this is a different show. It is. It's going to be different. And I was kind of hoping you wouldn't mention that I helped on this case because I'm scared what I forget about this case already. <laughs> well, you know, it's it, as we say, when we close a file, I mean, we, we always remember some of it, but uh, you start moving on to the next thing and you end up forgetting a lot about it rel- relatively quickly. I know Jeff does. Right. It's Steve, right? Yeah. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so so what can we say about Jeff and Rebecca, who we've known? That I've known hasn't already been said. I've known Jeff for uh, I think twenty years. Uh, I've been practicing law with him for thirteen years, which sounds like a long time. 
Um, Jeff is a very accomplished trial lawyer. Uh, he's pretty good at what he does. He's gotten some great landmark verdicts. Um, been named one of the top 100 lawyers multiple times. Uh, been named as an up-and-comer when he was younger, <laughs> but we're well yeah. past that now. Now he's falling faster. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and and Rebecca, uh, Rebecca has also been named as one of the top women lawyers, been na named uh, super lawyer multiple times, uh, has also been named as one of the top up-and-coming lawyers. Um, and I don't think I've been named a top woman lawyer. I am a you? woman. Well, so I'm saying you're... Well, thank you. We'll, we'll, you've you've we'll, named we'll, me. Thank right, you. exactly. Uh, anyways, we've been practicing law with Jeff and Rebecca uh, for a long time. Uh, even going back before uh, our law firm started, uh, Jeff, Rebecca, and I all worked on a mm -hmm. case together before we started this law firm. So, uh, so it's been a long time. How are you guys doing? We're good. It was a really long introduction. Wow. Yeah, I, I got to figure out something to say about you. <laughs> thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. We're well, thank you. Is, thank is, you for being here. Is it not the here. protocol? <laughs> right. Yes, thank, yes. thank you for being here. Yeah, you both sound so excited. We are so, pumped. I'm glad pumped. you could be here. <laughs> well, in, in all seriousness, this case that we're here to talk about uh, was a, um, is, is a very different case than I think what most people see. Um, the, as I said already, the name of the case is Jones versus CSX Transportation. It involved the death of Sarah Jones. And really, uh, the reason why I wanted to have this um, uh, case on here is because it presented a lot of interesting issues when it comes to the film industry. Um, and as we'll talk about, this case involved uh, shooting a film here in Georgia that involved the tragic death of, of Sarah Jones, who was a camera assistant uh, on that film. Uh, but it really brings up a lot of um, interesting issues when you start talking about uh, how all of the different parties involved, you know, who's responsible, who's to blame, um, and, you know, and how you might try a case like that in front of a jury where you have a whole bunch of people who all uh, have some responsibility, some more than others. So, uh, so you ready to talk about it? Sure, let's do it. All right, well, I'll give a, a brief background of this case. So this uh, case was tried back in 2017. It involved the death of Sarah Jones, who was a camera assistant on uh, the film of Midnight Rider, which was based on the autobiography of Greg Allman uh, and was essentially shooting uh, Greg Allman's life story. Uh, it involved a the shot, or the idea for the shot was uh, a dream sequence that they were going to do on a train trestle, which if anybody doesn't know what a trestle is, which I didn't before this case, it's a bridge. Is it trestle uh, or trussle? I don't know. What did I say? I don't know. <laughs> trussle? I don't Trussle. Trussle? Trussle? E or U? Trussle. E. E, okay. E. It's an E. Yeah. Oh, it's, a, yeah. it's a trestle. <laughs> well, a truss is what I'm wearing right now. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, so it involved a... a, a uh, train trestle uh, where they were going to have the older Greg Allman uh, sleeping and then and you guys are going to have to correct me was he was he supposed to be seeing himself younger or was he seeing Dwayne Allman on the bridge well so it's it's based on Greg's autobiography and there's a scene in his autobiography where he's in a hospital bed after he's overdosed for like the millionth time and he's laying in his hospital bed and he sees Dwayne, his younger brother who died in a car, in a motorcycle accident, um, walking across this bridge to him. And the whole premise is essentially, Greg, it's not your time. You know, you need to stay on earth. You have more to do with your life. And 
So that was the setup for this for this bridge scene. And it involves some well-known actors. Uh, William Hurt was playing the older uh, Greg Allman. Right, and don't, don't call him Bill. Don't don't call him Bill. He doesn't like that apparently. Um, but uh, but he he was playing the uh, the older Greg Allman. And um, essentially, what happened was is that these train tracks were owned by CSX Transportation. It was surrounded by the property of uh, Rainier Corporation, and um, through just a series of mistakes uh, by a number of parties uh, is what caused this tragedy. But it, but essentially. Uh, the location manager for the the film company called Film Almond reached out to try and get permission to shoot on the trestle. It was there's a lot of dispute over whether or not they got permission or they never did get express permission, but it was unclear that they didn't have permission. But in any event, um, they end up going onto the trestle. Two trains pass while they're getting set up, and this is all caught on video. Um, and then they get onto the trestle and a third train comes while they're on the trestle. All of this is videoed because it was a film being made. Uh, and you can see the train coming right at the crew as they're trying to get this bed off of the, um, off of the trestle. And, um, and it, basically everybody has to jump out of the way. Um, Sarah uh, somehow got hit by a piece of, um, uh, of, um, of the, we believe of the, Matt, the bed frame and then gets knocked under the train as it's going by and ends up getting killed uh, there and uh, it, it, it was a very high profile case it, it was um, uh, highly covered in the film industry and um, and like I said the 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 case that got tried was just against CSX transportation uh, and the result was an eleven million two hundred twenty one thousand four hundred ninety nine dollar verdict so um so did i miss anything no i think that's about? a good overview so i you know one of the things I, I or several of the things that are interesting in this case was um you know basically how the film industry and whenever a movie or a tv show is made um how all that happens and how all the different sort of companies get set up in order to do that it, which you know, from a legal standpoint of putting a case together, uh, can make it challenging. Um, but Jeff, you want to walk us through um, when you're looking at a case that involves the film industry, how different it is from sort of other negligence cases. Sure. So when we first got this case, all of us, um, I think, were completely unfamiliar with how films were made. And we didn't really understand all the the jargon and all the different positions uh, and really didn't understand who was in charge. And as we began to do our investigation, we sort of figured out pretty quickly that movies are very hierarchical uh, and they're very, they follow this sort of military model where you have, you know, people at the top of the food chain and then they have people below them who do various things. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about some of those people in a second, but Sarah, who was in a remarkable, amazing person was a second assistant camera operator but she was on her way up and the person who films the movie uh, is called the DP or the director of photography um, and all the evidence that came out of trial was that Sarah was headed that way one of the most foremost cinematographers which I kept calling 
cine, cinematographers yeah, still, throughout, yeah. still throughout trial. <laughs> and, and Yvonne snickers when I say that because I still can't get it right. But, um, but anyway, you know, so we, we learned who was in charge of various roles on a, on a film shoot. And in this case, there were really several people who screwed up. The first was the director who, who his name was Randall Miller and he went to jail and the, the location manager who went, was the went to jail because of this case, he went to jail because of this case, the location manager was a guy named Charlie Baxter. Uh, there was what's called a first assistant director, which is the person who on a movie set is responsible for safety. Um, and then there are various other people who were involved in the decision to film out there that day. But the bottom line is that they wanted to film on a movie. Uh, they wanted to film on a train trestle. They couldn't get permission to film on the train trestle. So the director and the first AD um, made the decision that they were going to do what's called stealing a shot, which is essentially just who cares whether we have permission or not. We're going to take our crew out there and film. Uh, and the director and the first AD and the location manager all knew that they didn't have permission to be out there. But what was tragic about this case is that none of the crew members knew that, including Sarah. So they all show up out there and, you know, they go out on the train trestle and they're kind of staging on both sides of it. And these trains come by, multiple trains come by. And, um, and then ultimately they made the decision to pull everybody out, start filming the middle of the track, and then the train comes along and hits them. So the case against the movie company was pretty straightforward, which is it was a screw up on the part of management. They didn't tell the folks who work there that they didn't have permission. And that case settled, not surprisingly, because they really didn't have a defense to what they had done wrong. But then that left the case that ultimately went to trial against the railroad. And a lot of people, there was a lot of press about this case. There's a lot of trolling of it in the media because people were saying, well, how in the hell can you possibly sue the railroad when the movie company never got permission to shoot? And what most people don't know was the rest of the story, the background of what happened. And what happened was there were several attempts to get permission from CSX to film on the trestle. And CSX was really interested in this project and never said no. I mean, they, they kept telling the movie company, well, we're working on it, we're thinking about it. And they waited till the very last minute till after actually people were on their way out to the site to send an email to the, to the movie company and say to them, we can't support you in this endeavor, which was the wording of the email, which became a big deal. And so the movie folks, the director in particular, decided that they would interpret that email in a very loose fashion. And they decided that, well, just because they can't support us doesn't mean we can't do it. And they went out there. Uh, and then the case against CSX sort of kicks into gear at that point. And there are all these policies and procedures that came out at trial that we were able to show the jury that CSX basically has a policy where if they know that people are near their tracks, then they have a duty to tell other trains that are coming along behind that there are all these people out there who might get injured. And that, that was kind of the heart of the CSX case. Two trains go by. There's a movie crew out there filming and nobody ever told the final train that strikes Sarah, Hey, you know, watch out. There's a big, there's a big crowd gathered on this train trestle. So they never, they never notified him. And then crucially the final train that came by and hit Sarah was going faster than the previous two trains. So and didn't apply the brakes. And, and never hit the brakes until after impact. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and 
right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked. No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Leading up to that day, there were all these emails internally at CSX for weeks about this filming and then and securing permission, what they wanted to do, where they wanted to film. And in their depositions before the trial, you know, we started hearing that they had a no filming policy, that they never let anybody film. But the emails, why, why did it take you weeks to evaluate a request to film if you have a no filming policy? There was a lot of inconsistency there that I think the public, for the most part, the press, they didn't really know about that. It wasn't a clean, a, such a clean yes or no um, and then obviously we're going to talk about what happened that day. But even leading up to that, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people didn't know, but it was really inconsistent. You know, they were saying you can never film, but there were all these emails running things up the chain about whether they could film. Right. Yeah. And we, and we, and at trial, we basically explained it sort of like if you're driving down the road in your car, um, you know, and you see someone who, a kid who runs out into the middle of the road or whatever it is. You don't accelerate, you know, you slow down. And the same thing's true if you're driving by, by in your car and you see a bunch of people on the side of the road who might fall out into the road, you slow down and you take extra precautions. So it wasn't a, what, what made the case complicated was the fact that there was so much coverage of Randall Miller's mistake and CSX basically came into the case and said, you know what, we're just going to blame everything on Randall Miller. And so we really had to struggle with, well, how do you balance that? Do you, what, what do we... What do we tell the jury about what Randall Miller's liability is vis-a-vis CSX? Right. And I remember, um, I mean, it was fairly, you know, CSX responds to these events very quickly. They have their own police force. They have their own safety people. And I remember that the, um, I forget what his title was, but one of the investigators was out there on the scene that night telling everybody that they hadn't given anybody permission and they had, in fact, told him twice is what they were telling the media that they uh, hadn't, you know, told him twice that they hadn't given him permission. Uh, and then when you actually read the emails themselves, it, it didn't at all sound like they weren't giving him permission. It really sounded like they were trying to figure out a way to make, mm-hmm. it, work. To make it work. And then, and then, like you said, that last email that comes on the morning of, which is we can't support you, and. Uh, you know, as somebody who doesn't do this type of work, I didn't know what that meant. I mean, it looked like, you know, I would have taken as, well, nobody's coming from CSX to help us out or nobody's going to you know, be out here on the train, but not that, not that you're not allowed to come out there. So it, 
I, you know, CSX uh, moved very quickly in how they were going to handle this case with the media, and um, and then that was something that that uh, you were fighting against from the very right. beginning. And on a related note, I, re I realize that Steve is the host of this podcast, but I would like to step in and be the host for just a second and ask Steve a question. Mm -hmm. Steve, do you, do you what recall? Question would that be? Do, you, do you recall, Steve, during the workup of this case when you were almost arrested? <laughs> yes, I do. And, and tell, tell, tell the audience a little bit about how you almost ended up in CSX jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the uh, so so yeah, they we, you know we had you you know whenever you have these cases, you hire experts and you hire. Uh, you know, your train expert who we, we had an accident reconstructionist. We hired our, our uh, train expert who had actually worked for CSX for a number of years. And, you know, was the, was the person who was telling us that, look, the policy is, is even if you know trespassers are out there, you go out there and you tell them to get off the track. So, so we arranged that we're going to go and inspect the trestle and inspect the track. And we're out there with other, because there was other people injured in this. So there were other lawyers out there. The lawyer from Rainier was out there. And, um, and you know, we go out there uh, to do this inspection. And the very first person we meet is this investigator. Uh, and, you and, can't, and you can't see him air quote that. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this investigator, and he's wearing like fatigues and he's wearing these military boots. And he's, you know, and he's a big guy and he's in good shape. And he basically starts telling us that, you know, he's in charge of this situation and we need to do what, uh, what he says. And we say, fine, tell us where we can be, you know, wh where, where do you want us to stand so we can inspect this? And, uh, and he tells us, don't go on the ballast, the rocks that are outside. If you look at a train track, there's the train tracks, then there's the rocks. He said, don't go on the ballast. We say, fine, we're not going to go on the ballast. And then, and then, you know, my experts wanted to walk down, you know, so they could see the sight lines. So we ask, we say, can we go down and walk down and see the sight lines? Um, and, uh, and they say, yes, you know, as long as you don't go on the ballast, we say, fine. Um, and so we start walking down there and one of uh, the lawyers for the other uh, plaintiffs in the case, uh, me, you know, calls my cell phone and he's like, Steve, you better get back here they're really pissed off at you. And uh, I said, well, what for? And, you know, and so we get back there and, and he has the police officers come out and they start taking down all the information of our experts. And so I immediately go ask the police officers for all of their information. Um, you know, and then, uh, and then this it's guy, calming the situation. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then, and then this guy basically tells us, uh, you know, that, uh, that we have no permission to be there whatsoever and that we can't be within a hundred yards uh, either side of the CSX tracks. And so, you know, I handled that in a very calm, <laughs> cool, rational way, as I always do. And I, and I told him, are you telling us, are you throwing us off the property? And at this point, we're about, you know, three inches from each other's face and, uh, and yelling at each other. And, and, you know, the lawyers there are, you know, they're not sure what's going to happen. I wasn't sure what was going to happen at that point. Um, but, uh, but basically, CSX threw us off the property, took, us all of, took all of our names, threatened to arrest me and my experts. And, uh, and then immediately, the lawyer for Rainier, who owned the surrounding property, so outside of the buffer for uh, um, the train tracks, you know, immediately came running up to me and he said, Steve, you know, Steve, you know, I just want to make sure Rainier is not telling you to leave their property. You can stay here on Rainier's property. And uh, of course, you know, we, we uh, uh, you know, um, I made sure to take down that guy's name so that I, I told him I was going to talk to the judge about him. And we did talk to the judge about him. And that ended up being a whole bunch of 
depositions and yeah. things like that that I, I think blew up a little bit during trial. It did. Uh, but uh, because I, one of our experts, I think, blurted out on the stand that, uh, that CSX tried to arrest us. Yeah, right? that was, I think that was one of the, the bases for one of their 17 uh, mistrial motions is that particular <laughs> exchange. But uh, I mean, but th that illustrates the fact that it was a very tense case and because it was so high profile and CSX uh, defended the case very aggressively. Um, so we, we really had to, we had to figure out how to explain to the jury that even though the film company had made huge blunders in this, that it's, un, that it's very similar to a lot of sort of accidents where you have multiple people making mistakes and it wasn't just Randall Miller. Well, it, and before we move on to um, CSX, um, you know, in Georgia, um, normally if you're working for a company and you're supposed to go under workers' comp, you're barred by workers' comp. And so, you know, one of the first questions in this case is, you know, why isn't any claims against the film company uh, barred by workers' comp? And that was an issue in this case, too, and is an issue in all of these cases. Uh, Rebecca, you want to take the... Uh... No. <laughs> no. Because, That's a team spirit. I, because right full disclosure, I didn't work on this case until right before trial. And okay. so I did none of the workup. Yvonne and you and Jeff did that. So I, I still don't know how we got around workers' comp, but I'd love to hear that. <laughs> well, so the, tip, the typical rule basically is if you're an employer and you have an employee and your employee is injured on the job, then there's a trade, the law kicks in and there's a trade off that's made. The trade off is if you're injured on the job, you're immediately taken care of and they're immediately supposed to pay you workers' comp benefits without there being much fight about it. It's supposed to just happen sort of automatically. And so you get your workers' comp benefits if you're an employee injured on the job. And the, the benefit that the employer gets is they get immunity. So if they go ahead and take care of their employees, do what they're supposed to do, then they, they can't get sued. But the question really boils down to who is an employee and who is the employer. And in movie cases, that becomes an incredibly convoluted question because the way movies are set up. Um, you know, there's a company that basically shows the product. So it's a studio or a distributor or whatever. So you have a company that's actually making the movie. And then you have somebody who's showing the movie. And then you have all these people who are employed by sometimes the distributor, sometimes the production company, and all of those people have their own companies that they call loan-out companies, and they do that for tax reasons. So in a, in a movie setting, you have this vertical, I mean, the traditional vertical employer-employee relationship is gone, and everything's kind of this horizontal plane of all these companies, and so it becomes really hard to say, as a matter of law, that somebody is an employee of, of a specific employer. And that's what happened in this case. There were all these different entities, all these different companies, uh, and, and we were able to, because we settled the case, it was pretty clear to us that, that the defendants did not believe they had a strong workers' compensation defense so they, they, they were able to resolve the case. Yeah, and sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to add to that because um, I did do a lot of the research about the comp issues on the front end, and we have worked on other film cases since then. The arrangements can get really complicated because you can have, um, especially in the camera department, you can have people who are 
bringing their own equipment and then they're getting paid or they're getting checks to basically rent the equipment that they bring right. every day. You have day players who are paid differently than the people who are sort of under contract or agreement for the whole season of television or, or for that specific production. Then you've got um, you've got union and non-union issues. You've, I mean, yeah, we didn't talk about the union side of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it can be set up a lot of different ways. There are a lot of different agreements that can automatically be triggered, especially if you're in a union. Um, there are rules about how, a production and how much union and non-union labor they can hire. So it, it this was an independent production, as I recall. So the union issues were a little bit, a little bit more convoluted because you have an independent film and a non-union film, but. Anyway. Right, right. And then for our listeners who aren't in Georgia, you know, Georgia has become a big center of, of filming, but especially when this happened, this is when productions were still moving here. This was before a lot of like the, a lot of the big Avengers movies had been filmed here yet. And so they were still kind of adjusting to people were still moving here to work on productions. There wasn't a lot of local skilled movie labor yet. And so movie labor that's the technical right. term um but so there was a lot that was still um developing at that time and is still developing but that that also factored into i think why the film defendants probably didn't think that the comp issue was very clear because these relationships can be so complicated and specific to a production well right and, be, and when it comes down to their tax you know implications they all want to claim that they're separate it's only right. when they are involved in a lawsuit that they then want to say they're one company or they're all you know together in it. Um, so one of the things I, I did want to talk about, if I can remember right from this case, when you said that they, they basically decided to steal the shot, if I remember right, there in some of the other movies that Randall Miller and his crew had made, in some of the outtakes, they had sort of bragged about this guerrilla style mm -hmm. movie making where they had stolen shots before and they had made a movie about CBGB. Um, the you know famous music venue up in New York and talked about some of the stuff they did in that case. So I just remember that being some of the you know evidence that they you know they they were sort of proud of the fact that they were they would sneak onto places, yeah. steal well, the, the shot. The director had in his past had several instances where he had um, done things that people on the crew thought were dangerous. There's a there was a scene where he had a kid in the middle of a cow pasture. And didn't that turn out to be his son or something? I think like so. That? Yeah, yeah, I think it was his son. Um, there was some scene where they were dropping a piano out of a second story window. And you know, these are all one thing about the movie business that we've learned since is that it's actually very safe. Um, and if if you're on a good production and they're doing things the way they should, there's a stunt coordinator who's making sure that the stunt people are safe and they're there are people, the first assistants are out there making sure everything's safe. Um, and that movies are not dangerous, even though they're sometimes doing dangerous things like blowing stuff up and moving tons of people around in high traffic areas. But Randall Miller had a had a history of doing things kind of that were a little bit uh, suspicious and, and uh, unsafe. And, you know, that was, but that was unfortunately something we had to deal with in the CSX case because it was easy to beat up on Randall Miller. Right. And we had to make sure the jury understood that we're not saying that Randall Miller was a good director because he clearly made a mistake this day that uh, he, he ultimately went to jail for, but but we wanted to make sure the jury understood that CSX screwed up too. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that helped us with that by nature of it being a film production is that we actually, we had the video that Jeff mentioned from the actual, from the point of view of the crew on the tracks from actual, they, you know, tape that was running. And then um, 
pictures, pictures of where everybody was. Um, and they really, I think that really helped the jury understand better the case against CSX because you saw what these previous trains that had gone by that day and how close people were to the tracks. But I think it also really helped. I, I sort of naively before this case didn't really understand how people got hit by trains when they were on foot. I just sort of assumed like trains are loud, you, you know, train tracks stretch on for miles. You can see trains coming. How does this happen? Seeing this video and the setup and, and the situation that crew was in, thinking that they were on basically closed tracks, they had permission to be where they were, that they would have all this time to get clear of danger. And actually having that video to see how a train can come across, come around a curve and how fast it moves was really, is really terrifying to watch. I mean, it's obviously really tragic, but I think it also helped um, especially, especially in this situation, help the jury see more why this wasn't just the film company that screwed up. Yeah, and what was terrifying in this case was that, that they were over, they were on this trestle way over the water. They see the train coming, and the only way really that they're going to get to safety is to run towards the train because it was much quicker to get to high ground if they ran towards the train. So they, you know, they had to make that decision and. Unfortunately, Sarah was the was the only person who was killed. There were other people who were badly injured, but she was the only member of the crew who was killed. Yeah, and you know, the one of the interesting things about this case, I thought, was not only did you have, um, I mean, you had video from the train itself because uh, all trains Some or most it. trains, yeah, we, we, yeah. We, that was another issue in the case how they they lost yeah. one. Um, but uh, from the train itself, you could see the video, you could see how long they had to see that something was on the tracks, regardless of whether or not they knew it was kids or, or a movie crew or whatever, uh, and that they did absolutely nothing to slow down the train that was going 56 miles an hour. Um, but then you also had the opposite perspective, which was the, you know, the, the cameras were running when the crew is trying to get off the trestle and as the train's coming at them. So you're seeing this I mean, really, you, you had uh, really strong evidence of, of what exactly was going on uh, on the day of that, uh, that, that Sarah was facing and how frightening that would be. Yeah, the best thing that's, it was a t it's a terrible tragedy and it was a terrible case, but this case made an impact on the business. Yeah. And people still to this day, they have what's called a Jonesy, which is essentially a meeting that happens on film productions and TV productions where people stop and talk about how they're going to have a safe day. Uh, the Sarah Jones Foundation was formed by Sarah's parents to promote film safety. Uh, it, it had a powerful impact on the film community, and um, people still talk about Sarah to this day, and we hope that the case had some positive benefit, and maybe there's a tragedy that will be avoided uh, because this case was, was well-known and got a lot of publicity, and that's all right. Right, right, and Sarah had so much promise. I mean, she had already, she had a lot of experience. She was 27, but she already, she always knew what she wanted to do. She had a lot of experience working on other television shows like Vampire Diaries. She was actually one of the kind of um, sort of weird, sad things about this case was that she was supposed to be working on the Fast and Furious movie um, do y'all remember this? She was mm -hmm, supposed to be working mm -hmm. the Fast and, on the Fast and Furious movie that was about to start filming when Paul Walker died. So right. she had that. It was the only reason up. she was there, right? Yeah. So the only reason she took the job on Midnight Rider was because the Fast and Furious filming got canceled or postponed. Um, and so you know, I, I remember talking to her parents about how what would have happened if Paul Walker didn't die. You know, would Sarah still be alive? 
Um, but she was just so talented and had obviously touched so many people in the industry. I mean, we had people, so many people volunteering to come to trial and talk about her and, and help us with her case. Yeah, and I think, you know, Jeff was talking about the, you know, some of the things that have changed in the industry. I think a, just a huge part of that is uh, with Sarah's parents, uh, Richard yeah. and Elizabeth, who are just great people, but really not only wanted to make sure their daughter was remembered, but really just wanted to um, make sure that this didn't happen again. And it, it did change the industry. And they're still to this day are still working um, strongly in that effort. Right. And in their other cases, one thing that I've found is, um, I'll be interviewing witnesses in the industry about something different, a different case, obviously, and they'll find out that we represented Sarah and they'll start talking about how it's changed the industry and how they have safety for Sarah signs, you know, around their office. But the biggest change, I think, is um, the encouragement for actors and camera people and cast and crew to, if they see something, to say something. Mm -hmm. And one question that I got from even my own family members about this case before trial was, well, why didn't she make sure that they had permission? Why, why would you go on the track with a heavy camera, you know, and walk out over a river and, and not make sure? And, and the answer is because her job depended on it. She, these jobs are transitional. You know, you don't want to be, even though she was, you know, very talented and she had a, a pretty big position, um, with the crew, she, you know, she was still working for them. And if she said, I'm not going to do that, there were 10 people behind her that would. Um, so. Which is a recurring problem in films. It because, is. Because, you know, if you're, if you're asked to do something that's not safe and you're a young member of a crew, you're sitting there in the back of your mind thinking, well, here I am. I've got my dream job. I'm working in the film and TV business. It's what I've always wanted to do. If I, if I step up and I say to this director, who's a well-known jackass, you know, mm -hmm. I'll never get another job in the business. And, that's the, the message from this case is, you know, if you see something that's dangerous, don't be afraid to say something. And the people who are in management need to be looking out for their crew members and making sure they don't put them in that position where they have to make that terrible choice. Yeah. So, well, let's, uh, let's turn to the trial itself. The, um, so by the time this case gets to trial, all of the other parties that we had talked about, the, the film almond, people, the director, everybody else had resolved their cases, uh, including Rainier. So that by the time this case went to trial, it's just against CSX. And, um, and there are a number of empty chairs for CSX to point the finger at. Um, so, you know, talk about the approach to the case. And, um, you know, Knowing that you knowing that you were going to have several other parties that had responsibility for what happened that had definitely made mistakes, um, you know how you were going to get the jury to focus on CSX. Well, so in Georgia, there's this process called apportionment, which is what you're alluding to, where you can where the jury can look at what happened and they can say, okay, there's a defendant in this case who's partially responsible. We're going to hold them this percentage at fault. And then if there's somebody who's no longer in the case, we can also allocate a percentage against that party. And there's really two ways to do that. You can either try to try to limit what the jury hears about those other people in pre filing pretrial motions, or you can just own it. And we just decided to own it. I mean, we basically just said, you know what, 
we're just because this thing is very high profile. There's no way that people aren't going to know that Randall Miller pled guilty to being the director on this on this show that ultimately that Sarah was killed on. So we just told the jury, look, Randall Miller has pled guilty. He's accepted responsibility. That's not what this part of the case is about. What this part of the case is about is what CSX did wrong. We want you to focus on that. We're going to tell you right now to go ahead and allocate some fault against Phil Mullman and Randall Miller, and hopefully that'll put an end to it. And we did that on purpose because it sort of forces CSX to come up with something new. And it kind of forces them to come up with something other than, well, it's all Randall Miller's fault. Except they didn't. Except they didn't. <laughs> right. In fact, the joke that we had, you know, behind their backs, and now it's on a podcast, but they were, you know, it was basically, a, they, were basically they sounded like a parrot, yeah. you know, like, Randall Miller did it, Randall Miller did it, yeah. and that's all they could say. <laughs> and, you know, the jury, when we, when you say an opening statement, Randall Miller is partially responsible and his team is partially responsible for what happened out there. I'm going to tell you that right now. We're going to tell you that in closing. And then you spend the next week with them essentially making the same argument you've already conceded than I think. And, and Rebecca spent a lot more time than I did interviewing the jury. So, you know, t tell us about it. I mean, what, what was their take on that defense? Well, they... They they didn't buy it. They they understood what um, what we what you tried to do in opening closing and, and take responsibility. I was if you heard me rustling, I was just looking for my notes with the jurors. Um, they the problem with it is by the time they got to deliberate, um, they didn't understand why they had to apportion against the other defendants who were on the verdict form. So, and I, I read the notes before I got here, and one of them said one of the jurors said. Those other people weren't here. Why did we have to give them a percentage? And and they they did not understand. In fact, they sent a note to the judge while they were deliberating and said, "We don't understand this apportionment." Well, the original verdict had no apportionment against anybody. Right. Else. That's exactly. So it's if if the listeners are confused by the whole apportionment process, you're not um, alone because it's it is difficult to understand. It's difficult to explain to a jury why they have to apportion when there's only one defendant sitting there, but the law says they have to do it, and 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 ultimately they did. Um, but it's a you know it's just a difficult thing. To, to deal with, but I think we did the right thing. And I mean, honestly, we struggled. I mean, yeah. I remember us having conversations <clears throat> late at night, <laughs> you know, do we own it or do we try to keep it out? Do we try to file motions to keep out this argument about the other defendants? But Well, um, and, we, and we ultimately told them, go ahead and allocate half the fault against the film company and the other half against CSX. And that is a really hard thing for a trial lawyer to say. It's yeah. hard It's hard for that to come out of your mouth yeah. when you're arguing, but but it's the right thing to do. And accepting, if we had done anything other than that, I think we would have had a different outcome. Well, and it's what we talk about all the time on this podcast and other places. It all goes back to credibility. I mean, you, you weren't denying the fact that there had been other people who were responsible, that they had taken responsibility, and you were even telling the jury to do that. but. On the other hand, CSX wasn't taking any responsibility at all. And so when, when it comes down to you know, who's more credible, which is at the end of the day, the most important thing in any trial, um, it's easy to say, well, CSX is obviously not being credible because they're just not taking responsibility for clear. I mean, you know, some of the evidence that we, we need to talk about is there were clear violations of their own policies and procedures and even their own engineers and, and um um, conductors, you know, would say things that were uh, completely opposite or completely different than if you just read their manuals, what they were supposed mm -hmm. to do, which uh, really um, uh, undermined them. But again, it just comes back to that uh, 
that credibility. Um, right. but, um, and before we move on from that, I do want to mention with the apportionment that the defense had had insisted on listing Sarah on the form. Right. Right, in which the jurors, by the way, hated. They they obviously didn't apportion to, to Sarah, but but they said when they got back there, I mean, I guess they, they didn't understand why the other defendants were on the form, but they understood that there was some liability, but they were like, what? We're supposed to consider whether Sarah Jones? Right. And there was zero evidence that Sarah knew anything about right. the fact that they didn't, that the permission had been fully secured. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. Uh, and they also do local search, and I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means, and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. You know, one thing you mentioned just sort of uh, in, in passing, Jeff, and I just want to make sure everybody understands, when this, so the verdict form that we're looking at um, you know, has a place for to put down conscious pain and suffering and then the, the damages for the full value of the life. But then it, it has a number of people to apportion between, including Sarah, including CSX. And then it uh, looks like eight other, mm -hmm. eight other people, which included uh, uh, film employees, Rainier, uh, studios. And when you, when the verdict first came back, when, when the jury had filled out the verdict form, um, they hadn't apportioned to anybody. No, the the original verdict was eleven million dollars against CSX. So, did, so was CSX filled out, or was that that part was blank too? I think it was blank, but okay. if they, but they're the only defendant. So the way that the law would work, and and you know one of the things about that was we believed it was a it, that it becomes if the jury comes out and they have rendered a verdict against the only defendant, then that's it. But the judge instructed them to go back and apportion, and they did. Right. And, that, you know, that was going to be an issue on appeal, but fortunately, we got the case resolved. And ultimately, they ended up um, apportioning 35% of the fault to CSX. And I, and I remember in their appeals that they filed that one of their points that they argued is that out of all the people on here, they were given the most percentage, including more than Randall Miller. And they just, basically, their argument was that just can't be true. Yeah. Well, yeah. because the defense had a tact made a tactical decision to put as many people on the verdict form as they possibly could, up to and including a person who was un unidentified on the train trestle. Um, and they do that a lot because they want the jury to feel like they have to fill in those numbers and it dilutes the amount of the verdict against whoever the defendant is. Uh, yeah, one thing I was going to ask is there's a number of people who say that they're an employee of Phil Allman 
How, how did that work that they ended up putting the individual names instead of just putting Phil Moment on there? Well, we got into an argument about that. Our, our argument was you can't have, if someone is an employee and the employer is vicariously liable for the tort of the employee, you can't have both. It's one or the other. So you got to have either the employer and not the individual employees or the individual employees and not the employer. So that's how that shook out. Um, there were, I think they elected. I think yeah, the judge allowed the allowed defendants, to pick. yeah, to pick yeah. whether they wanted individual names or if they wanted the employer. And they wanted as many people on there as they yeah. could get. Exactly. Yeah, they probably picked right. Right. They probably <laughs> did. Yeah, because what we what I think should have happened is it should have been CSX film almond. Right. Maybe Rainier. Yeah, who's yeah. also on there, but um, right. Well. Um, well, Rebecca, you were starting to tell us, or I think, that, and maybe you weren't done telling us about what some of the jurors thought of, of some of these different arguments. Um, you know, um, what did what did the jurors have to say, or how did this whole issue of permission play out at trial, and you know, what whether or not there was permission for them to be out there? Well, one of them. And I'll say I did not interview all of them. I interviewed most of them. Um, but one of them um, compared that email, the one that said, we cannot support you in this endeavor, to um, disciplining or, or talking to her child. And, and she said, if, I, you know, if my child asked me to go, if he could jump off the roof, and I said, well, I cannot support you in that endeavor, <laughs> first thing he would do is go jump off the right, roof right, because exactly. it's not a no. Exactly. And, and so they, um, and that was our argument, and they completely understood that. I mean, they, several of them said, if CSX had done something, mm -hmm. we wouldn't be sitting here. If they had, you know, sent someone out there, because it, not only did they not say no, they knew they were going to be out there when a train was coming by. You know, it wasn't like they were out there in the middle of the night when there wasn't anyone. Um, you know, no trains were going by. They knew that these folks were gonna be on a trestle when a train was going by and they did nothing. Um, they knew that they were out there, actually, when two trains went by, three trains went by, um, and then they didn't slow down. So those were kind of the three things yeah, that, that each juror, you know, and they were all different, they had not, talked since the deliberations, but those were the things that they came away with. Um, the, what they told me was that the reason they were out so long, which they weren't out all that long relative to other cases, was um, the amount of money. Right. It really wasn't a, didn't come down to liability. It was, um, it was the amount of money. Yeah, I can't remember how long they were out. I can't either. Day. It was, I don't know. Yeah, they came out, they came, we closed that morning and they came yeah. back before the end of the day, Maybe. right? Like so. Like, like, like at like 4.55 or mm -hmm. something. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about the policies and procedures of CSX and, you know, because what I remember from this case is, you know, you, you've got the, I think there's three trains that actually went by beforehand and we had one or two videos. I can't remember. I know we were missing one because that became an issue yeah. in, in the, in the trial. Um, but, um, it, it, I remember, you know, basically everybody's standing there right at the train tracks, you know, setting up their stuff. Some of them, I think, were even waving at the trains as they were going by. And, you know, and whenever, you know, the um, engineers and conductors, none of them, even though the, all of them were supposed to call that back to their dispatcher, none of them made that call. Um, so talk a little bit about how the policies and procedures and what the 
engineers did or didn't do uh, when you have so many trains going by and seeing that these people are right there on the track? Well, the first thing we tried to do was to put it all into perspective. And, and if, you, if you think about trains for just a second, you've got these multi-ton things that roll through towns and they roll through cities and they're constantly causing you to have to stop in the morning when you're driving into the office. And they're just a part of life. They're constantly going back and forth and they're not doing, they're not, you know, they're not uh, doing that out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing it because they're a giant business that, that travels back and forth across the country. And so the, the policies and procedures are really meant to address how big trains rumbling through cities and towns are supposed to act. And they're not, I mean, they, they make sense, which is, for example, it's not uncommon for a train to go through the middle of some small town in South Georgia where they're having some fair and somebody forgets to tell CSX about the fact that there, there's a fair going on. Well, does that mean that the train, because the CSX hasn't been told about the fair, does that mean they should just blast through there and mow down all the kids? No. And so CSX's policies recognize that, which is, well, if, if we don't know that something's going on, but we learn about it from some other source, then take that information, use it, and, and try to make sure that we're a safer company. And that's really what all these policies were about. It, there was, you know, if you see people on the tracks, if you see people near the tracks, uh, if there's somebody who's doing something that might endanger themselves or CSX's property, then just let everybody know about it. Right. And it's not a huge imposition mm -hmm. to just pick up the radio, which is located in every train, and say, hey, we got a bunch of people hanging out near the tracks here. Slow down and keep a, keep a lookout. Well, and we had, I can't remember if we got it into evidence or not, the with the U.S. Geological Survey? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Some guys went out there measuring. This was some, a document that came in where the federal government had gone out there doing something, measuring something. I don't know what the U.S. Geological Survey does. But, uh, survey surveys, geological, surveys, surveys geological stuff. <laughs> right. But so the, the geological survey people were out there, and, you know, the same thing happens. They didn't have permission to be on there. The train goes by. They see these people out on the tracks. They call it in, and then a cop runs out, goes out there and runs them off. They radioed it right. in. Yeah, they did exactly what they should have done here. Steve, right. Steve Lowry's near the tracks. Cop goes out there, <laughs> exactly. runs them all. Yeah, they certainly were there quickly when they thought I was near the tracks. So when you, we, this wasn't some really crazy thing we were saying that they needed to do. We were just saying, do what your policy says, which is if you see people near the tracks, let everybody know they're there and do something to make sure you don't send a train barreling through there that might run into somebody. But where I think they really got sideways was in order to try to rebut that defense that that these people were near the tracks and they should have done something about it. They elected to go with this trial strategy that what they saw the people doing on the tracks was not out of the ordinary. Right. And therefore there was no reason to call, um, to call it in, which prompted me of course, to revert to my sarcastic obnoxious <laughs> self, which is because they were filming a movie and, and uh, one of the people who was out there was in a hospital bed wearing a hospital gown. Right. And then there was another dude who was out there who was supposed to be Dwayne Allman, who had like mutton chop sideburns and was wearing a 1970s outfit carrying a guitar. And then if that's not enough, there was an entire camera crew of people holding like cameras and big, you know, shades giant and all this, screens, giant screens and all this other stuff. So, you know, if that's not out of the ordinary, yeah. I'm not sure what would be. And, um, you know, that was one of our main trial themes, which is if you, if you want to take the position notwithstanding the fact that you had 72 emails that told you they were going to be out there at exactly the time and place and day, 
if you want to ignore all that, still the two trains that go go by, I mean, that's a weird scenario that you right. think somebody would call in. But yeah, and I, I remember, you know, because like their their policies, and I don't remember exactly what the number was, but it's either fifty feet or fifty yards to either side of the rail. If they saw anybody in there, yeah, you know, they were supposed to. They were trespassers. They right. were supposed to move them off, and and you know that could include calling back, slowing down trains, getting on a horn, or even sending out their police officers and their investigators to actually go find those people and remove them, which right. is what they did in the, with the U.S. Geological Survey. Right, right. Well, and it, it, it brought up this interesting sort of conflict where they it, they didn't want to call the movie people trespassers right. because trespassers were a rail in their policies were a quote-unquote railroad emergency that had to be reported. Right. So they didn't want to call them trespassers. Okay. But they did want to call them trespassers to be like, this is all the movie people's fault. They were trespassing. But so they, I mean, as yeah. I feel like they never really used the word at trial because... No, because they, they, they had a policy that says, if someone's trespassing on CSX's property, it's a railroad emergency and you have to call dispatch. Okay, so... It, it, I think they argued that when they were when the other trains came by, they weren't trespassers because at they that moment in time, right? Yeah. But then, obviously, when they were when which they were is, hit, they were because they were on the bridge. Which but. is where this whole missing video thing became important because they're at the front of every train. There's a video camera that that records what the train sees, and it also <clears> records the speed. It's kind of like an event data recorder in an airplane that crashes. Um, and so there was an event data recorder and a camera that was on one of the two trains that went by that was lost. Yeah. And, you know, the whole argument, well, they weren't trespassing at the moment in time that we went by. Well, how do we know that? You had a camera that you, that yeah. you know, was lost. So that became an issue. Well, well. And that, that became, uh, that, that became a, um, for me personally, a very fun <laughs> part of the case because the same guy who tried to have me arrested was the same guy who lost that camera. And so I got to go depose him, and, and, uh, and he you know, says, him "Remember happened. me?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he, he was uh, he was much nicer when he was uh, you know on yeah, camera. I remember, he called you Mister Lowry multiple <laughs> right, times. Exactly. Um, but the, the event data recorders that were on the trains were pretty cool, like because you could see when they were applying their brakes, which which type of brakes that they were applying. Um, they have their sta standard braking. Mm -hmm. I always forget the right word. Service braking and then emergency brakes, you could see when they were laying on the horn. So a lot of the stuff that you might have to rely on witness testimony or whatever for, we could look at this recorder and know exactly when the brakes were being applied, when the horn was being applied. And one of the things that we could see about the, the train that struck and killed Sarah was that it had been laying on the horn for a while, but never applied the brakes until after that. Sarah was hit. Right, and, and the defense was, it wouldn't have mattered. So right. on cross-examination of one of their experts, Jeff gets up and do you remember what you wrote? No. <laughs> some brakes oh, yeah, oh, equals... I think that was an Avon note, actually. <laughs> was it some brakes yeah. equals more, more time? time? Yeah, because right. you know, yeah, they got into a hyper-technical defense of, well, you know, well, if you apply the brakes here, how much more time does it... And they, they wanted to quibble about it, but if, ultimately, if they had applied the brakes, everyone agrees it would have slowed the train down some amount right. and provided some additional time. Right. We, we were arguing about, like, they, they were arguing about the mechanism of how the air braking would work, and, and we were all like, well, okay, well, if they had done some braking, right. it would be some more time. And so right. then Jeff, in his very sort of most sarcastic and surly wrote it on a board or something, but it was very effective. Yeah. Some breaks equals more time. 
But, you know, that goes back to the, I, I think really it, it was a huge fact, and I speak to that too, uh, back about the jurors, but the testimony was that the engineer and the conductor both at some point thousands of feet before the trestle both agreed that something was on the trestle. They weren't exactly sure what it was. One of them said, oh, I think it might be a car. I think it might be people. But they're having this conversation about the fact that there's something on the train track and nobody hits the brake. Right. I mean, so, and, and their policies are clear about well, that. And if any, if any of those earlier trains had called back earlier and said there's people here, then yeah. they would have immediately known, hey, they wouldn't have people. Had to, right. Well, they wouldn't have had to sort through who it was exactly. So. I remember one of the things in the depositions, uh, because they, when we were taking the depositions, they, they basically, the engineers were now saying that the policy was they didn't care what was around the train tracks as long as if they weren't within the rails. Mm -hmm. It was, right. you know, if it's in the rails, that's what we care about. And I remember asking some uh, obnoxious question about, well, you see these people here on the side, they could be terrorists, right? And they could be there to blow up the, the train. And, and the, the uh, uh, engineer or oh. whoever it was, he said, uh, well, I know how to recognize terrorists. Said, how do you recognize them? If they're wearing a turban. Yeah. Um, and that, that uh, deposition was played for the jury at trial. And when I was looking back through my notes, that, that was one of the jurors brought that up and said that didn't look good. That didn't sound good yeah, you know, well, for yeah. CSX. Yeah. I mean, it was that, that sort of, uh, yeah, the way they acted, not, you know, I don't know how their lawyers prepared them for a deposition, but they clearly weren't prepared <laughs> well. So. <laughs> or they didn't listen. I don't know. Right. Um, well, um, so, so, you know, you were able to get through the fact that, um, you know, you had these other people who were also responsible and get the jury to recognize what CSX did uh, was wrong and how that uh, played into it. So, and, and Rebecca, I think you said that what the jury was spending a lot of the time talking about was damages. So talk a little bit about Sarah and talk about how y'all went about presenting the value of her life? Well, that was that was the easy part because she was, um, as Yvonne mentioned, just such a wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, it was interesting because I interviewed, that, that was my main role in the trial was damages. Jeff handled all the liability at trial, but but I interviewed a lot of her friends and coworkers and family and stuff like that. And, and I learned to stop saying, oh yeah, I know, I know how great of a person she was because people would say, no, you didn't, no, you don't. You didn't know her, I did. And so it was, it became kind of sensitive, um, but we ended up having, of course, her parents testified, which they were amazing. I, I, I still don't know how they got through that. I don't know how they got through the trial watching that video, the video from the train barreling down on the crew, but they were very strong. Um, so we had, her, we had a couple of her friends testify. The other people who were on the track that day that worked with her testified um, about how great she was. And then we had a couple of coworkers, one of which was a um, pretty famous director of photography from LA come in and testify. He worked with her on Army Wives. And, and he just talked about how unique she was and not only just what a great person she was, but where she was going. And he, he used the example, and I'll, I won't be able to do it justice, but it was something along the lines of after Sarah died, there was a, um, the Academy Awards, I don't know if they presented something about her, but at the end of the Academy Awards that next year, they had Sarah's name and I think a photograph of her. And he said that he was just so sad when he saw that because he, he believed Sarah would have been 
uh, receiving an Academy Award one day because she was that good. And, um, and his testimony was pretty powerful along those lines. But um, yeah, he's, he said that he, he envisioned himself someday sitting in a nursing home. Is that what it was? Yeah, he, he would be sitting in his chair in a nursing home and he would look up on the TV and he would see that Sarah Jones just got an Academy Award for Best Cinematographer. <laughs> I can't say that word. That was good. Yeah, you got it that yeah, time. Yeah, you do. Not cinematographer. Not a, not a cinematographer. But yeah, and, and the people that, you know, Rebecca did such great work sort of talking to people and finding people that logistically could make it because I think we had a lot of people who would, who would have wanted to come to the trial, but, you know, we had to with the time that we were allowed and, and everything else, we had to figure out a way to cover the different parts of Sarah's life. But I mean, these people came from, a lot of them came from California and all over the country just for the chance to talk about Sarah. Yeah. Right, and she had, um, there were several writings, which I don't know, these, I don't think these got into evidence, but we had some folks read some of her writings um, throughout her life because Sarah wanted to be a, a, a videographer, cinematographer for her whole life. And, you know, it was funny because we didn't have as many videos of her because she, she was, was always, always behind, behind the camera. camera yeah. And so, um, but we had some. And so she wrote this, her mom gave me this note that she wrote, it says it was six years to the day before her death. So she was been 21. So she was, you know, still in her early 20s. And she talks about how she wants to travel and she wants to meet people and she wants to help people. And the last line of it said, um, I want to capture the world one frame at a time. And, you know, I, th I think her mom might have read that in the stand and it was pretty powerful because that's what she was doing. She yep. was she was living life and loving life. And um, she was going to be, I think, I think they said famous one day. I think we all agreed that with yeah. that. Well, that is the one thing I, that came through from because there were some videos I remember uh, seeing of her and um, that she just seemed to enjoy life yeah. so much. Mm -hmm. And really, anybody who talked about her just lit up whenever they right. talked about her. Um, and she, yeah. you know, uh, a beautiful young uh, woman and uh, obviously a rising star in her industry. Right, she was she was petite and, and they talked about how heavy, I didn't know this, how heavy these cameras are. Um, and that, you know, she would lug these things around. They would, con apparently it's pretty much a man's world in the um, cinematography <laughs> <laughs> uh, profession and so you know that she just basically did went above and beyond um, physically um, you know mentally emotionally she was just there for everybody yeah the camera assistants the one lugging around all the heavy camera equipment and supplies and carts and all that and she was this tiny little woman lifting these giant heavy cameras and we had so the other thing that was great is because she was in the movie business we had so many pictures of her on set so, you know, unlike some cases, we were able to kind of show how vibrant and dynamic and special she was using a lot of photographs. Yeah, you know, one thing I was thinking about in this case, because there was so many different uh, camera angles and things like that, did, do you want to talk some about some of the demonstratives you used at trial and what was Ugh. you thought were effective? It, 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 I can tell from Rebecca's face, they, she obviously thought of a lot of them. But there was I, one that I hated. <laughs> Remember the trains and the... Yeah, well... <laughs> okay, I need to stick up for myself here because I made... It, was, it got very confusing because there were... We had data from four trains that day. Three trains that went by before the striking train and then the striking train itself. And there, there were three trains that went by, but there were only two of the trains that went by when everybody was there. So that's right. why there's a little confusion. And then one of those was missing video. Right. Each train had a conductor and an engineer that had been deposed about what they saw. 
um, each train was going in different speed and went by at a different time of day. And so I had made, <laughs> I had made something, I swear, for us to use internally right. to keep it straight. But then we were like, something like this would be useful for the jury to help them keep it straight. So I had to cut on a board and put it in front of the jury. What? But I didn't, was I was like, out of know it was supposed to be internal. Oh, I don't know. Do y'all have a website where you can post like show notes? I <laughs> we think can. we should post that and there should be a vote on whether this was effective or it, not. We, we, if, if Yvonne can use well, that, we the, find the, the honest, that The out. honest truth about that demonstrative, to be just completely <laughs> candid about it, was I could never remember which train yes. was which. Yes, that's why and I so made it. I, I mostly put it up on the in the in the courtroom room on a board so that when we were cross-examining people that we could just remember what train went by at what time which conductors were on which trains and you know which camera which train had the missing video from so it, it wasn't very pretty <laughs> I, I admit it was, it was ugly hideous. it was hideously ugly oh, but it was very effective I, I and the jury know. actually I thought they, they would look at it they would be like oh yeah this they train. were confused I, I talked uh, to them that confused well they were them. probably confused by its effectiveness well, then halfway through <laughs> no then halfway through the trial in retrospect. Jeff decided that the way the train yeah. numbered didn't make sense. Exactly. <laughs> that, that didn't help matters. So he crossed it out. And so I whip out my sharp, Sharpie and, and make the confusing demonstrative slightly yeah. more But confusing. I mean, the truth is everybody knows, um, well, a lot of people know what it's like when you're leading up to trial. And we just, we just ran out of time. I mean, we well, just had to stick with what we had. I mean, let's, let's face it. We had one really bad dis demonstrative that Yvonne apparently made that she didn't tell anybody was not supposed to be used at trial. <laughs> so we'll put that aside. But we, but we had what you, what lawyers don't often have. I mean, we had live video of this tragic yeah. accident and we had Mom. not only, we, not only did we have video from the camera that was, you know, that they were filming, but we had the cameras from the train. So we were able using the guy that we use on all of our trials, our trial tech guy, Who's a sponsor, LTS. Yes, yeah. Bob Poston. Um, you know, we were able to do a lot of really interesting stuff and and um, and be able, we were able to show this from a perspective that I think it's pretty rare you're gonna have that in life. Right, and the jurors did comment on Bob, as they always do. Yeah. Um, the fact that we had a, a Bob and CSX didn't, they right. thought that our presentation was much more technical. I think jurors now, you know, expect a lot of things, video and, and things up on the screen and, and call outs of documents and stuff like that. And, um, you know, Bob can do that for us and does do that, but CSX didn't have that. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of confused. They, they felt like CSX being such a big corporation yeah. would, would have that ability. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've talked we about this before that I, I, I always think that if you come out and you give a, a very organized, you know, technical, you know, where you're walking the jury through everything, then the jury expects these big Fortune 500 companies to have something better, uh, you know, to do something more. And then when they don't, it looks, it just doesn't look good for them. Right, right. And we should also mention we had one of our experts, Shane Remy, had done some calculations about what would have happened if different types of braking was used for that striking train, how much extra time that would have provided. So we had some really good sort of visual um, demonstrations of what that would look like that I think really that were powerful because i mean it was a difference of a matter of seconds and in fact one of the um all the alternate if there if emergency braking and the end of train device had been applied it would have been possible at least according to our expert to stop the train bef completely before it hit the bridge oh. so um that was really useful as well but yeah i mean we just i think we kind of we did everything we could we had jim scott and an expert in train operations to talk about what the standards were. So we, I think we've tried to hit it from a lot of different angles, 
to show the jury how it could be different. And they just really didn't do much of that on the other side. They didn't, I don't remember them having really any demonstratives or anything at all. Well, they had photos that were doctored, which oh, was yeah, a big deal. Uh, you want to talk about that, the doctoring? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, so they brought in an expert who was supposed to essentially show that where the conductors, where they originally, um, they, they never hit the brakes, but they came off the throttle. And so what we said was, well, wait a minute, you, you pulled off, the, it'd be like driving down the road in your car, you see a kid in the middle of the road, you don't hit the brakes, but you just take your foot off the gas. Well, our argument was, wait a minute, you know, you knew somebody was up there, so you come off the throttle, you clearly knew that something was happening up there on the tracks and you never hit the brakes. Their defense to that was, well, no, you couldn't see clearly how far away the train was, you couldn't see the trestle. So they brought in this guy who took some photographs from way down the trestle, which, by the way, they clearly stopped the, right. you know, the railroad. They, 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 the let, they let this guy do what Steve couldn't do without getting yeah. arrested. Um, but then they brought in these pictures, and you know, you put, they put the pictures up on the screen, and the pictures showed this like blurry thing that looked like the trestle. Well, they changed the focus on the, the, on the camera that took it to where it wasn't the same as what the human eye would see. And we were able to get that out into evidence and show that they'd actually tinkered with some of these photographs. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I remember from that case, if they were talking about the fact that they took their foot off the throttle but didn't hit the brake, I mean, they, they constantly talked about, you know, when you have these hundreds of thousands of pounds, you know, going at a speed, I mean, those things just don't slow down. I mean, mm -hmm. you've got momentum at that point. So, um, you know, I, I, I mean, it is true those, they're hard to stop, but that's why you should try stopping as quickly as possible. Right. Well, their, their argument was that it could have derailed the train, Which it um, but it didn't. Right. So it, right, you, you mean, know. yeah, because right. they did stop. They did know. stop without right. derailing. Right, that's, that's the other thing. We, we could, our expert was able to say this is what, have ha what would have happened if you applied emergency braking when you let off the throttle, because we knew exactly what would happen, because they did it. Right, when they, after when they, they did when they, it. Just after they hit, yeah. yeah, after they hit and killed Sarah. Well, I was wondering, do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, about William Hurt? And uh, you know, whether or not, uh, whether or not, William Hurt is a very nice man. Who <laughs> right, was very helpful to the family. Well, the, and, the uh, idea was to call him as a witness at some we, point. We, he actually uh, came and spent some time with uh, with everybody. He he spent some time here in the office with us. Um, you know, we we prepared him to go. Um, he's a very nice man, but he's um, a bit of a, an odd guy. Um, mm -hmm. And somebody made the mistake of calling him Bill. That's why I made that joke at the beginning. And, <laughs> I don't remember who. I think it was Yvonne. It was not me. <laughs> well, anyway, somebody called him Bill and got yelled at. I can't remember who it was. But we, we ultimately decided not to call him because uh, we really weren't sure what would happen. Right. He, he, he wasn't a, a, exactly a, a witness that you yeah. knew what was going to come out of his mouth. Well, and also, this was true with every witness. We had to, you know... Everyone didn't understand that this case was just against CSX. And so a lot of the film and television folks wanted to continue to talk about, right. you know, the Randall director. Miller, yeah. And, and, and that, understandably. Right. Um, but as much as we were owning the fact that they were responsible, we didn't want to have our own witnesses harp on that. And I think that William Hurt, he just, he, he couldn't get past what this director right. did. Right. That's well, why he traveled here for her. Right. And when he was on, I mean, he was in that production. He was one of the people who didn't know they didn't have permission to be out there. He was laying in that bed. So I don't blame him, who I did not call Bill, <laughs> for not being able to, for, for it being hard not to harp on that. Right. Yeah. And, and, and on a related note, I want to go ahead and get on the record. When we originally filed the case, we had no idea what had happened. 
we were representing this family who wanted to know what had happened to their daughter. We, we couldn't get access to any of the documents. The OSHA was doing an investigation. So we filed a lawsuit, and it's not uncommon when you first file a lawsuit, you sue multiple people. And so it, the original lawsuit, we had a number of defendants, one of whom was Greg Allman. Yeah. And uh, of course, you know, being from Georgia, my phone lit up. I got a lot of my friends going, I can't believe you beep and sued Greg Allman. He's an icon. What's wrong with you? Right. And um, over time, uh, he, he was very helpful. His lawyers were very helpful. They basically said, look, whatever we've got, you can have it. Greg had absolutely nothing to do with this. He didn't know anything about it, which ultimately turned out to be true. Um, and he was a really nice guy. And I'm sorry we sued him. <laughs> we did, we did dismiss him. Yeah. Well, we dismissed yes. him. And uh, but yeah, that's how it works because a lot of times in a civil case you just don't have access to all the documents. So I just wanted to be on record. Maybe that's, I'm glad you brought that up. Maybe maybe, uh, maybe all those people who were really mad at me for suing Greg Allman. Limit some of the hate mail. <laughs> we're already well, going to get a lot of William yeah, Hurt fans. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure. Which, and if uh, you read, if you read his autobiography, which I encourage you to do, because it's got some really good stuff in there. But the best, the best line in his autobiography is when he, when he, when he describes first meeting Cher, he says, "I walked up to her." And she smelled like what I would imagine a mermaid smelling like. <laughs> and ever since I've read that, I was like, that's not good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's kind of like a kelpie smell or whatever it is. <laughs> but I've always been sort of confused by that. I, I think that was a compliment. Yeah. So I'm going to try that one on back later. Yeah. <laughs> I well, picture um, more of like a beachy. Yeah, beachy yeah. that's what I'm thinking. Like suntan yeah. lotion, beach. Yeah. Island vibes. Right. Exactly. I, I don't coconut. Think so. Yeah. yeah. Coconut. No, because you don't, you don't, if a mermaid washes up on the beach, then it's going to be like a jellyfish. <laughs> you know, like, it's not going to be a good smell. I think the little mermaid smelled fine. Well, now, now we're going to get hate mail from the sheriff. Fan, right. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm not saying she smelled like that. I'm just saying that's what he, never mind. I'll <laughs> um, well, uh, uh, the only other thing I was thinking about in this case, because I think we've covered pretty much everything about the trial, but uh, did you all want to talk about uh, there was a juror afterwards <laughs> who uh, wrote into the uh, to the newspaper this. about I thought, this, I thought we could get past and, and, uh, and 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 uh, gave Jeff and Rebecca the uh, nicknames of of Ken and Barbie, which uh, we very quickly for Jeff turned that to Dad Bod. <laughs> And uh, what the, do you want? Do you want to talk about that uh, that letter at all? Go ahead. Go ahead. Mike. So we had. I told you that I interviewed most of the jurors. There was one juror who would not talk to me, and we found out why. Um, unfortunately, uh, she she'd had her her son had passed away, and um, she really I can't remember the circumstances, but from day one she was not gonna hold. A corporation responsible because she couldn't do that in her son's death. So from how she got on the jury, I don't well, know. Well, she didn't. She didn't disclose that. She didn't I mean, disclose and that's that. That's one of the. That's one of the problems with these cases is you're dependent upon people to tell the truth in jury selection, and if they have something in their background and their past that influences how they're thinking about a case, they need to be honest about it. And she wasn't. Right. Sorry to mean interruption. No, that's okay. And and she got on the jury, and she almost hung the jury, according to the other jurors. Um, she definitely brought the verdict down. Um, and one thing we always struggle with in, during trial is what do we ask for in closing? How, do, we, do we give a number in a wrongful death case, or do you let the jury decide? And if you give a number, what number is it going to be? 
And what did you get? I don't, I don't remember, but in, you know, in Georgia, you can get the lost future, the full value of the life of the decedent, which includes non-economic and economic. Sarah's economic damages were huge. I mean, because she was going to be, she was young, she was in an industry where she was going to make a lot of money. So, you know, this was a verdict that 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 it would have been, and I don't remember the exact number, but it was pretty big because she was so so amazing, and yet she also had such high economic numbers, and that was one of the. You know, I, I, like a lot of trial lawyers, you don't want to have sour grapes when you win. But I mean, it was frustrating because this woman did affect the outcome of this case. And we know that, unlike <laughs> unlike a lot of cases, because she wrote a letter to the editor complaining about how terrible and what an injustice the whole thing was. I think the, I think the actual sentence was, shame on you, shame on, yeah. Luck, Ken and Barbie. Shame and, on you, Ken and Barbie. Shame right. on you. And, and she was disgusted by the process. Right. There's somehow another, you know, we manipulated them. Now... Her credibility is pretty much shot. I mean, my wife looks exactly like Barbie. I mean, she does. Um, but to equate me to Ken. Gray hair and lobsters. And then, of course, you know, Steve Lowry over here. Who was it that sent me the dad bod, pic, dad bod Barbie uh, I, picture? It might have been me Bob. or Jed or Bob. Yeah, I don't know. So, but, well, it was not a compliment. But thankfully, the jurors, actually, the other jurors got together and they wrote a response back. And it was a did. really good response. I was actually trying to find it. Um, I don't know if that was it or not, but they, they, they went through the evidence and they said, look, you know, there's been all these media accounts of, of, you know, this is a runaway jury. This is a frivolous lawsuit. And I'll never forget one of the, it might have been the foreman said. Who was a deputy sheriff. Yeah. And he said, there are a lot of frivolous lawsuits out there, but this is not one of them. Yeah. And so, you know, we felt like they were, because we didn't want to write another letter to the editor because it just makes us, you know, we didn't have the credibility, but for the other jurors to do that, um, it meant a lot to us. And I think it meant a lot to the Jones family as well. Yeah. Right. Cause that case had stayed in the press because it initially was in there because of the movie business. And obviously it was this tragedy and especially big news in Georgia. And then it had just kind of stayed in the press, but we were getting, you know, you were just getting like two paragraph max sort of articles written in, in you know online or whatever that didn't have that didn't really set forth the evidence that we had against the train company so even after we got the verdict i had other lawyers asking me how did y'all pull that off and if you really knew the evidence in the case if you were really there at trial um you know it it wasn't like it was being reported right right i mean it goes back to you know csx's uh very quick spin to the media yeah. and to the police uh, they were investigating this that they had clearly not given permission two times in writing you know and so and, and so that's the story that got reported by everybody even though when you actually looked at the evidence that was far from the truth and they had never not given permission they you know at most said they wouldn't support it's something. it's very similar to it csx's immediate re immediate responses we told them two times in writing that they didn't have permission and they ignored that and that is not a true statement. It's very similar to no collusion, no obstruction. <laughs> if you just keep saying that, who, who says that, you just keep saying that over and over again, regardless of whether it's true or not, you know, it might, it might seep into the media. Right, right. We're going to have to hire like a new file clerk for all the hate mail. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, what I, no, I, so I pissed off mermaids, Cher, Donald Trump. Good good. Yeah. <laughs> Billy Hurt. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 William Hurt. All right, my work is done here. Uh, well, never, um, never I, I do, I, I do want to say, I mean, and, and Jeff talked about it uh, briefly. It, it, I mean, this case was not only important for Sarah and not only important for, um, you know, what for the family, 
But I mean, this case really um, did a lot for the industry. And I think, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, what we hope to accomplish as trial lawyers is to uh, change things for the better. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this case, uh, you know, and, and Sarah's legacy and her family's uh, work have really made the film industry a better place to work and made it a safer place. And I think that's an important thing and that, um, um, you know, even more, even more than the, the tremendous verdict that you all got is the, the effect that this had, you know, on the rest of the industry. Yeah, and, the, and there's a website called Safety for Sarah. Yeah, so safetyforsarah.org? I think so. Okay, yeah, and, so uh, go look at safetyforsarah.org. And then I have one final question, which I always wonder during this case, is do you think Midnight Rider is ever going to get made? I don't, I don't think so. And I think, I remember um, that was one of the things that before Greg Allman passed, he, he kind of decided okay. that because of this tragedy and out of respect for her, they made the decision that they would never make this movie. Yeah. So. I think it would make a good movie, but I mean, I yeah. understand the... Uh, you know, and, and, and we had talked about maybe trying to do something uh, Sarah's family talked about doing something with Greg Allman's estate to, to try to go ahead and make it in her memory and you know, to make it a positive experience. But last I heard, and it, that may have changed. It, it was All right. Well, thank you for coming on. It's been a great show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.